one way to get to know folks in an institution like Ravinia or an orchestra, an opera company, a dance company, theater, is to not use the word mission statement because everybody goes to sleep when you say it, but to talk about, you know, who are we? Is who we are everything we want to be or could be? And if not, how do we get there? Welcome to Arts Engines. I am your host, Aaron Dworkin. And with us as today's guest, we have Wells Kaufman, who serves as president and CEO of the Ravinia Festival. Wells, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Aaron. It's great to be with you. Uh, well, it's so great. There are so many things that I want to ask you about, so I hope we'll have enough time. Um, but I thought where I would actually start off, because something that's I, always interested me and I think interests a lot of members of our audience, which is curation. And so in your role at Ravinia specifically, but also past roles, there is a breadth of artistry that you get to curate that um, I think few often do in terms of that breadth, classical, orchestral, you know, Chicago Symphony, but then rock, pop, hip hop, et cetera, right? And so, you know, these uh, types of worlds, I think can have different expectations, different cultures, maybe even different languages, literally. And wondering just from your perspective, are they different worlds? And when it comes to curation, how do you traverse those and make decisions? It's a great question. And it actually speaks to why I was so honored and privileged to work at Ravinia because Ravinia was built as an amusement park, not as a music festival. It was built to lure people uh, from downtown Chicago up to the North Shore and buy real estate, built by a train company, which is why we are still the last private train stop in Illinois. It stops at our front door. Um, but, that, but I speak to that because it's always had a kind of impunity around what it could do, right? When you're in an amusement park, all bets are off. And I think of ourselves in many ways, um, similarly to Tivoli Gardens in uh, Copenhagen. Um, Tivoli also built by the train company, train stations across the street. But it has also been a place of fun, of family, very important, little kids, all sorts of ages, welcome beautiful outdoor space, um, and lots and lots of different kinds of music. In fact, the first music played at Ravinia was also the first music played at Tivoli. It was a calliope, of all things. Um, and in many ways, both are kind of town squares. They're places where people from all sorts of backgrounds meet. That's kind of the beauty of Disneyland or Universal Studios or any great amusement park, right? Everybody's welcome. Everybody's going to have their own experience, like sort of different things. And from a musical point of view, Ravinia very quickly became that. Um, there's always been a primary focus on classical music, but that has, mu has much to do with being um, created in the early part of the 20th century. That's what people did, right? Um, that was the music of its time. So when Ravinia was doing a whole bunch of Wagner and opera, those are pieces that had just been written. So it was the contemporary music of the time. Speaking to my background, um, there was no classical music in my family whatsoever. 
My father was what was then called a country western fan, now called country music. My mom was a musical theater fan and big band fan. But I had always wanted to play the piano. They found a teacher for me. I begged to take lessons. And that's where the classical part kind of came in. But because of the family background, um, I was an assistant rodeo clown. This is true. There are photographs. Um, and you never want to be the assistant rodeo clown. The rodeo clown's purpose is to lure the bull away from the rider on the horse, right? When you're the assistant, you're just slower than the regular clown, that's all. So it's all bad. Um, but the musical part of it was huge to me. On the musical theater part, um, I was a really terrible boy soprano. But when you're a boy soprano with um, courage or chutzpah, don't know which it is, you end up playing Oliver, Artful Dodger, Young Patrick in Mame, Winthrop in The Music Man. Um, and so that part of theater and that kind of music was always a big part of me as well. And when I hit junior high, friends of mine and I, we played in jazz band in school. We started a rock band with the primary focus not to write our own songs because we weren't that gifted, but to play for dances for junior high kids and high school kids and make a little bit of money. I had the Volkswagen bus, so that meant I was the carter of everything. Um, but I also played... Um, uh, Fender Rhodes uh, electric piano because you could move it around easy, right? Um, and I was also the operator of the dry ice machine. Very important. Very important to have those smoke effects, especially when you're doing a Commodore's medley. You have to have that. Brick house is just not the same without some steam and ice. Um, so coming to Ravinia was like coming home. Uh, yeah, classical music, definitely. The, 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 the brilliant Chicago Symphony Orchestra. This amazing array of artists. Education programs. My parents are both school teachers. Big for me. And then all these other kinds of musics just kind of fit into what I wanted to do. And they are very, very different indeed, with one exception. Quality, right? Duke Ellington often said there's, no, there's only two kinds of music. Good music and bad music. There's bad country music, there's bad classical serious music, there's bad um, hip hop, there's bad uh, musical theater, right? So you're always striving for the quality of peace and that's what we try to do at Ravinia. But they are very different worlds indeed. And is there a, a sense, you know, sometimes some people say that a particular, certainly, you know, people in you know, the classical world like to think that their particular, you know, um, genre of music has either a level of complexity or aspects to it that other you know genres don't what do you think about that perspective that people sometimes bring and what's your commentary on that well my first commentary is that you should run for president because you're quite the diplomat <laughs> um, my second comment is it's not just complexity it's superiority it's an arrogance that goes with the classical world that sometimes can be nothing more than annoying because even as classical music uh, arts administrators and artists are constantly complaining and wringing their hands about audience, they've put themselves into an ivory tower of such steepness and exclusivity and elitism that they're pushing everybody away. You know, I'm a big fan of the pre-concert talk. I love pre-concert talks. They really started in earnest at the, at the LA Philharmonic when I was working for Ernest Fleischmann. Um, and I love them. Nerd and me just love them. But in fact, for most audiences, especially those that don't go to classical music already or don't know much about it, the signal sent is, you're kind of dumb. You gotta get smart to come enjoy Brahms, come to this lecture. Um, 
And that's been telegraphed for decades. And again, I love lectures, but they're usually for not the person who doesn't know anything yet, but for the person that's already into it and they want more information. So they have a value. Um, but that superiority, you know, the whole history of classical music, whether it's Joe Horowitz or anybody else that's written about it, um, is about that superiority piece and, crucially, civilizing an untamed country, right? So it also had a social impact and a social motivation that <clears throat> all these rubes are out on the ranch and out on the farm and, you know, trying to build the United States into something that would be com competitive with Europe, right? Palaces, cathedrals, concert halls, institutions, royalty, church. Um, the way to do that was to start, you know, the, the Cincinnati is a great example, right? The biggest concert hall in America for years was the music hall in Cincinnati because of the May Festival, a direct import from Germany. Because there were May Festivals where everybody would get together and sing, do it together communally. I love that part about it. Yeah. And it's that communal part about it that has made Ravinia so special for me. Because if you're at a Leonard Skinner concert or a Mary J. Blige concert or a Maroon 5 concert or a Chick Corea concert or a Mahler performance of, of countless people on, on stage or Igor Levitt playing Beethoven in the Martin Theater, it's being with other people that is the significant piece. And that, for me, is the greatest loss of the pandemic we're living through right now because you just can't do it virtually. Zoom is a brilliant feature, right? Um, and I don't know anything about technology, but I love it. But it's not the same as sitting next to someone who is experiencing what you're experiencing, but perhaps feeling something completely different. There's a richness around that. And you know the audience that gets that more than anybody, faster than anybody, are little kids. They're the ones that feel it. Which actually so brings me to, you know, of course, Ravinia has this extraordinary history and, and commitment to education and to young people. And so with Reach, Teach, Play, I think a lot of our viewers, again, might have not just an interest kind of what, what Ravinia is doing, but also because of their own educational programs, there might be aspects of how you approach it that could really be informative for some of our viewers. So wondering kind of just actually this idea of arts education, right? As in, where do you think its importance lies? Because especially right now with pandemics, other things, people, organizations are looking at cutting often education takes a piece of those cuts. So wondering both for yourself and at Ravinia, how do you view education and, and why is it so important this aspect of what you do with young people through uh, Reach, Teach and Play? So it was the other big draw to get me to come to Ravinia and be interested in it and, and love it so much. Our education programs were started in the 60s, almost 100% focused on being a civil rights issue, an issue of something for everyone. That if we really were going to say about ourselves as a place for music enjoyment, Ravinia Festival, and if we were really going to say something for everyone, we needed to make sure that embrace was far-reaching. Um, but being the 60s, it was a logical time to do it. And that still is true today. So our education programs today have morphed into a couple of different streams. We are big proponents of the Sistema movement. We love it. We love it because it's actually playing an instrument and playing in an orchestra, that communal feeling kind of up a notch, right? Because not only are you enjoying music making, you're doing it with each other. And for a child, whether they are eight or 13 or 18, 
they have a responsibility to the others on stage, whether it's in a jazz band or a string quartet or an orchestra, hugely important. For us to do it at Ravinia, which we do during the school year and our only theater that is year round, right? So we don't want to freeze them out in the snow. Um, to play in a place that has a, a, I wouldn't say a grandeur to it, but an importance to it. Professionals play here and the kids are doing it, hugely important. Performance is wildly important. When I came to Ravini, we were largely sort of people in a classroom teaching. Um, here's what the treble clef is. Here's when Brahms was born. Those are not unimportant things, but it's kind of book learning, right? More than anything else. I wanted to inject performance into it because Ravinia was a performance place. And there's so many musicians who have either already had the knack of being people that could get it across the footlights for children or learned how to do it. And we wanted to exploit, quite frankly, and grab all of those performers, no matter what their background or type of music might be, and bring them into the classroom. So performance is a big part of it, both sharing performances with kids. I often go into a multi-purpose room in an elementary school with a singer or another pianist, and we sit at the piano, and the kids are sitting around on the floor around us, and we play for them for 10 minutes, then they ask questions, we do some more. It is so simple, but it's really, really powerful. And I remember those experiences as a child myself, especially not having it at home. And there's something about always being able to guess what the first question is going to be from a child when you're playing the piano. It's not, oh, that was pretty, or how long did you have to practice to learn that, or how do you actually do it? It always is, how does the piano work mechanically? That sings to me, because I was a kid that just loved, you know, cash registers and mechanical things, and, and um, it's surprising that I'm not a tech person today, but I'm really not, but, but the piano... It's a, you know, whatever way into a child's mind and heart is good for me. Systema, of course, takes that up a notch. The whole Systema principle is you start playing immediately. You don't go to a practice room for four hours a day and, and then four years later audition for an orchestra. You start playing. Does it sound like the Vienna Philharmonic from the beginning? Of course not. But it's that communal piece of it that Abreu so brilliantly captured in Venezuela and has just been like wildfire ever since everywhere else. Exactly. So one of these extraordinary new spaces that you have to, to work with there, and, and I just think about, wow, and uh, kind of what's happening there, and, and especially if that could even be replicated in, in different places, but this is the Music Box Experience Center. So um, what I think first for our viewers, what is it? Uh, if you can kind of capture that briefly, but more importantly, why is it in, why is it an important space? Why do we build it, right? Yes, exactly. So my journey with the Ravinia family, that's our board, our life trustees, women's board, associates board staff, about 400 people. My first goal was to get to know them. The best way to get to know folks, not the best way, one way to get to know folks in an institution like Ravinia or an orchestra, an opera company, a dance company, theater, is to not use the word mission statement because everybody goes to sleep when you say it, but to talk about, you know, who are we? Is who we are everything we want to be or could be? And if not, how do we get there? That dialogue took about a year by the time I was able to corral everybody because they weren't used to doing that as a group, right? So it'd be small groups and, you know, Saturdays for a half day and lunches downtown and things like that. And it was really fun and I got to know 
who the people were at the same time. And when you ask somebody what kind of music they like, you know a lot about them pretty fast. It's fun. So that process got us to the something for everyone moniker is something we wanted to celebrate and, and, and really make live. And then there was fear, concern, hand-wringing um, issues around where is the next classical music audience going to come from? Not unique to Ravinia, certainly. Um, everywhere that I've worked, Atlanta Symphony, St. Paul, LA, New York, has had the same feeling. And so we started on a journey that started talking about sort of marketing and the number of orchestras that are in the United States and price and quality and the fact that our conservatories and universities in America are churning out a level of playing that uh, Christoph Eschenbach often says to me, um, you know, Brahms would never have expected the Vienna Philharmonic to sound as good as the Elgin Youth Symphony. And it's true. That's partially that the instruments are so much better, right? But it's also just the playing is on such a high level. Um, so all of that we needed to look at. That took a couple of years. Let's look at um, what's out there, what's going on. Why was it such a big deal in the 19th century? Why does it seem less of a big deal today? What, what is the effect of recording and television? What is the, the effect of the mushrooming of the number of orchestras in the United States and elsewhere? All of those kinds of things. Then we got to the place, okay, uh, what about price? What about this and that? What about food and beverage? What about the Ravinia experience? That allowed us to start thinking about the fact that our, our buildings, our performance venues, our food and beverage, our restrooms had begun to verge a little more on the shabby side than the chic side of shabby chic. So put about $60 million into those kinds of improvements. It was needed. It was important. Some are hidden. Some are invisible. Important as well. Some are more visible. Um, then we started thinking about the Ravinia opportunity. And what is the Ravinia opportunity? And for me, it was kind of simple to look at, having worked at the Hollywood Bulb and a student at Tanglewood and seen other summer festivals. And because of that variety of programming that we started our conversation with today, it was the non-classical show that we would do, Indigo Girls, Bonnie Raitt, Bob Dylan, Maroon 5, Common and, and, and Queen Latifah. And people will come to Ravinia, yes, to picnic, but also to get a great spot on the lawn. The lawn is really what the Ravinia experience is. We have reserved seats, but the lawn is it. And sometimes they will get there early enough to, to be there when the doors, the gates open, which is four hours before showtime. So there they are. They come in. They get their great spot on the lawn. They, they lay out their picnic. They call their friends on the phone. They say, we're over here. They go to the restroom. They go to the gift shop. They might buy something. Thank you for doing that. They might go and look at what we have for food and beverage. And they still have three hours. So we have this, I like to say, sort of a gently captive audience. And on a Maroon 5 night, that audience can be 10, 15,000 people. That's a lot of people. So why not give them something else to do? Give them something that is easy to access, therefore free, um, technologically kind of whiz-bang, so exciting and enticing for all ages, um, something that doesn't take a long time for the show itself, and I'll describe that, but could be something you meander and sort of linger in if you wish to. So make it up as you go along. And something that is intimate. So we built a theater that seats 60 people. That's because we wanted it to be intimate, but also in the off season, we wanted school groups to come, and I never wanted it to be more than two school buses. Having done kids shows and produced them all my life, the moment you get up above about 100 kids, you've lost half of them. It's just too much cacophony. Um, so what is it, is the question. 
it hasn't even officially opened yet. So it's going to open in 2021 between the virus and some construction delays. And it took us, it took me about seven years to raise the money to do it. Um, and convince people that this was the right thing to do. Not everybody was convinced. I have a lot of the pre-concert lecture type folks. God love them. I have a lot of people who think it should only happen in the classroom. God love them. Um, but this was something that I felt very strongly about. And ultimately, we brought in a consultant who did all the analysis and put everything into a nice package and we could look at it. Um, <clears throat> so you'll enter into the building, the Ravinia Music Box. You'll have a kind of intro. You'll go into a next space and you'll get a little more information. And then the next space is the actual theater where you sit in a seat. And that's a 10 minute experience of surround video. It's a kind of dazzling experience um, that one might think of as, uh, well, the, in Springfield, Illinois, there's the Abraham Lincoln Museum. It's, it's actually the same tech guys and, and creators and, and storytellers that do that, or the Ryman experience in Nashville, or the Saturn V rocket experience at Cape Canaveral. Lots and lots of work that they've done around the world. And this is really fun and very cool. And then at the end, you end up in a sort of standard museum gallery space. So we needed a subject matter for the first show. And it felt obvious to me, but it took some time to get the Ravinia family along board but they're there now. And because actually of the civil unrest and social unrest we're going through as a country, and because of the virus, even more important, and we chose Leonard Bernstein because we knew we were going to be approaching his 100th birthday. Lenny, of course, composer, pianist, conductor, America's music teacher, and social activist, and an American, right? So that's what the show is about. If I try to go beyond what I've just said, quite frankly, we wouldn't have needed to build it. You got to come see it. Yeah. Is that fair? Awesome, truly amazing. And unfortunately, we're actually just about out of time, but one okay. kind of last question I wanted to kind of yeah. see with that is, so when you have, say, the Maroon 5 you know, yeah. crowd who comes through, do you envision now through that experience that this may create new interest paths or bring them back to Ravinia, but to a different genre? And, and could this be used as a model by others? That's exactly it. One has to be realistic about those expectations. One has to understand and remember that it's been 5% of the population of any country, Russia, France, UK, America, that has an affinity for and an enjoyment of and a desire to learn more about classical music. And that's fine. 5% is a lot of people, right? We want to grow that a little bit if we can. But yes, you know, we can market the heck out of things. We can have video screens that say, come here to the Chicago Symphony, um, play Mozart, uh, come to this opera, do that kind of thing, reduce the price points, bring your children, um, have a picnic, do all those kinds of things. And that has a certain effect. But there's another part about, I wouldn't say the importance of classical music, because I think that begins to get to that superiority place. But this is something else that we do at Ravinia. We want you to avail yourselves of it if you wish. This is an entry point. That's all it is. We don't expect the 15,000 people that have come from Maroon 5 to go. First of all, it's not big enough to do that. That's on purpose, right? But we could probably take care of 1,000 people on a night because of that four-hour situation, right, before the show begins. And that's pretty good. And then we have a way of talking to them. Are we going to capture their email and have them sign up for something and leave us a comment card so we can be more in touch with them? Absolutely. All of those things would be put into play. And I would be um, uh, mistaken not to say that part. But what you laid out, you know, this is what it is. This is kind of what it can do for you. This is why we love it. 
and why it's such a big part of Ravinia and always has been. And we do it on a level and at a price that are both extraordinary. So come and enjoy. Wow. Wells Kaufman, you truly are one of the great arts engines that is powering human creativity. Thank you so much for joining the show, and it has just been fantastic, and especially sharing so much about Ravinia, which is extraordinary. We're excited that Ravinia is one of our creative partners here at Arts Engines, and looking forward uh, to being able to come in uh, and see things firsthand. Excellent. Uh, what you've described is truly powerful. Thank you so much. Thanks for allowing us to be one of the partners. It was a real pleasure, Aaron. You take care.